We're very honored that uh, this next conversation uh, can be with one of the leading scholars of uh, U.S.-China relations and China's evolving role in the world, uh, Professor Sui-Shang Zhao, uh, who has been for the last 20 years a professor at the uh, Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. Uh, and editor of the very influential uh, Journal of Contemporary China. Uh, he has also been, we're very proud to say, a national fellow at the Hoover Institution. And he's uh, really one of the most widely published and influential scholars on China's strategic thinking and its role in the world. So Sam, welcome, and uh, we're delighted to have you for this conversation. My honor and the pressure here. So um, you've been saying that there are three ways of uh, looking uh, at uh, China's rise in the world and the challenge that it may or may not pose to the liberal international order. Uh, there is an attitude that is uh, saying, look, uh, you know, um, it's not that big a challenge or a problem, it's inevitable and China's not gonna overturn anything, uh, we should accept it and move on. Uh, there's an alarmist view that this represents a kind of existential uh, threat to liberal values in the world. And there's a kind of wait and see view that we don't quite know where this is heading yet. So how should uh, our listeners uh, you know, parse through those three perspectives and which do you think is uh, kind of um, the best way of thinking about China's global rise? The current international order has been constructed under U.S. Uh, leadership. China is a rising power. China has a very different uh, um, political values and the political systems. Uh, in that case, um, and there is an issue that uh, is China uh, content or discontented over the current uh, liberal international order. And uh, as you mentioned that, that there are three different answers. Uh, one answer is that uh, the current liberal order is liberal, uh, open and uh, rules-based. If China just rising within this uh, rules-based order and uh, the order could accommodate China's expanded interest and uh, China could rise within the system peacefully. So that's one view. The second view is that, uh, uh, no, China is not happy with this system and China's value system cannot uh, coexist with this system. China would have to uh, challenge and even replace the current uh, rules and norms in order to rise in this system. So at a stake in this case, it's not only about US NATO. Uh, order in which U.S. has dominant position is order itself. The rules and norms would have to be changed, which will be a big challenge to the international community. So we have be we have to be ready and uh, deal with that. The third third view, as uh, we mentioned earlier, is that uh, we're not sure if China is ready uh, in the position or with enough resources to challenge uh, the current international system. And particularly if China has alternative values, which could be accepted universally by the international community to overtake, overhaul the US uh, system. So we have to wait and see. 
Um, personally, I think the third view uh, makes more sense to me because uh, I really don't think China has these type of resources to provide sweeping global public goods, which will qualify China as a global leader to take leadership role to reconstruct the, the order. Second here, the Chinese order, the Chinese hierarchical Tianxia system, the Chinese dominant uh, system uh, is not, uh, uh, does not respect freedom, does not re respect the human rights, uh, individual rights, and uh, is at odds with the current modern uh, diplomacy. So uh, in that case, uh, I don't think China is ready, but in the long run, we have to wait and see. So those are the positions I think we are talking about. Before I turn it over to Glenn, I'd just like to ask uh, about the way China is viewing and the way China is asserting itself in the United Nations. I know this is uh, uh, something you've also been following. So how does China think about the United Nations now and how does its profile and posture uh, in and toward the UN, uh, how has it been changing? China is a reformist, revisionist power uh, in the uh, global order and uh, China's attitudes toward UN at this time, UN system is also revisionist. They try to twist them of roles which they don't see, see advantage to themselves, such as the human rights uh, uh, council uh, role. They try to impose the China sovereignty-centered, uh, state-centered uh, roles to give the state governments more leeways to maneuver in the UN system to prevent uh, those kind of uh, UN functions of uh, monitoring, for example, uh, human rights violation within national borders. Uh, and uh, China, uh, in the meantime, also try to use its uh, influence, try to gain more leadership in the UN system, within the UN uh, structure, to gain advantages uh, to its economic and political uh, interests, uh, and also some other UN peacekeeping uh, operation. China has contributed to a, a second uh, contributor to the UN peacekeeping budget. But uh, China still uh, try to uh, use its own state-centric uh, value to oppose, for example, the uh, judicial reforms and uh, internal monitoring, all those kind of uh, training uh, 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 human uh, rights uh, issues. So it's very different. China has taken very optimistic and uh, very kind of mixed ad attitudes toward the UN system at this time and played a very important role in other, uh, on other hands. Um, in the first several years of Xi Jinping's administration, China very much was on the charm offensive. There's the famous uh, speech that she gave at Davos, for example, in which he was the darling of globalization and was very much taking advantage of the fact that the United States had stepped back to an extent from its leadership role. But even before COVID, we started to see China adopting a slightly more aggressive and assertive posture in its international relations. And with COVID, certainly wolf warrior diplomacy has taken a larger, more visible role. And China has become much more muscular in its approach to countries that criticize it, like Sweden and even Australia right now. Um, do you think that the wolf in the sheep's clothing is now exposed, that these two different sides of China's global presence were always there? What do you, what do you forecast for the future? Um, the charm offensive or the more assertive posture and which is truly behind China's um, uh, objectives internationally? 
Chinese diplomats for many decades uh, were known as uh, 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 moderate courtesy because they followed Deng Xiaoping's uh, low profile uh, diplomacy and tried to avoid confrontational. But uh, since Xi Jinping came to office, this has changed entirely uh, because uh, Xi Jinping has thought China's time has arrived uh, to be a big power in the global stage to pursuing what he uh, talked about China's dream, restoring China's uh, position as the dominant power uh, which, enjoy, which it enjoyed two centuries ago. Uh, in that context, Xi Jinping has called for fighting spread, fighting spread. Uh, they have uh, treated diplomacy as a battle. You have to win. Uh, those foreign countries, they are not as uh, uh, some countries to make compromise negotiation as diplomat, diplomats supposed to do. As some uh, rivals, you have to defeat. Uh, that has set background for the change of Chinese diplomatic uh, behavior. China has become much more assertive. Chinese diplomats has become well, has been known now as a wolf warriors instead of a diplomats. Chinese Ministry of uh, Diplomacy has Ministry of Foreign Affairs has become known as a Ministry of a Warrior uh, Ministry. I mean uh, diplomats. So that has changed dramatically. I think uh, this trend will continue and it's for quite a while because uh, uh, Xi Jinping has now uh, 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 emphasized that the international environment becomes uh, 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 more serious for China and China has to uh, fight back uh, to um, uh, gain its status, uh, to defend its own interests. Uh, and uh, China in the meantime has more power to defend its interests. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the Chinese side has used the term so-called national interest uh, much more often. It started from uh, financial crisis 2008, 2009. Before that, China even did not talk about national interest that much. Now it's called national interest. What is called national interest? Meaning that uh, it's a bottom line of national survival cannot be compromised and even cannot be negotiated on many issues, Taiwan issue, Xinjiang issue, now South China Sea, all those issues. So in that context, I joked to my colleagues in China, why you need a foreign ministry? You need the Ministry of Defense is enough, military to fight. But unfortunately, that's the <laughs> trend we see in China. Even Wang Yi, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, I thought he's a very, very gentleman, but he's become what I cannot recognize in some kind of context. But that I don't think that's in the interest of China. China would suffer from those kind of behavior. Eventually, China have to come to the reality that uh, China is a part of international community. China has to make a compromise uh, in, as a, if they want to conduct diplomacy. And uh, so that's what I see it. But they, unfortunately, the trend has continued. I wanna loop back in that regard to the question that Larry first posed about the right way to understand China's engagement in the international community and the posture that other countries should adopt, whether we should take the wait and see, the more liberal approach or, or China as a revisionist power. Because in some sense, the Westphalian model and the model of the liberal international system, which the US has underwritten for most of the last few decades, was, promised on was premised on cooperation. But Xi Jinping, as you rightly noted, has really privileged this idea of dojong, you know, struggle. 
uh, which is a fundamental Marxist concept and a Maoist concept and seems on its face incompatible with the idea of accommodation and coexistence. Do you see a contradiction there? Yes, of course. Uh, 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 Chinese behavior now is very contradictory to itself. Uh, they have uh, two faces. On the one hand, uh, very often they show so-called some, some kind of collaborative uh, face. They also emphasize the uh, cooperation. For example, the globalization. You, you mentioned the Davos uh, 2017, when Xi Jinping was there. He, he, he became an unlikely champion of uh, globalization because of U.S. Uh, withdrawal. He emphasized shared responsibility. That's what the, the, uh, the, the topic of uh, his speech at uh, Davos. Uh, so China showed that uh, aspects if uh, that uh, serves its interests. But very often when they talk about those uh, globalization, all those collaboration, what they have done indeed is very different. Uh, especially if there is a conflict of interest uh, with China. They have been very, very uh, assertive, uh, try to pursue those uh, interests, uh, even uh, uh, appears as a very kind of a violent type. Uh, that's what I, we see China's two faces. Uh, that's why while China has met friends with Russia, with Turkey, and uh, Iran, I call it excess of evil, access of uh, authoritarian uh, governments. They are working together well, well because they shared um, grievance against the United States and uh, those kind of uh, interests. But on the other hand, if it comes to national interest, border conflict, for example, with uh, India, all those uh, interests uh, with uh, Australia, when Australia talked about uh, finding origin, the, the source of uh, COVID, and China was threatened, they would do everything to appear as we talked warrior uh, type of actions. So it's a, indeed, it's a contradictory behavior and uh, the international community should be aware of that uh, and find ways to work uh, through that and to confront those uh, uh, warrior type and uh, in the meantime, understand China's interests and also their own interests. Thank you, Larry. Uh, you have uh, thought about and written about Chinese nationalism uh, very deeply for a long time. Reports suggest that it's growing now uh, and um, growing not only from the top down in terms of Communist Party messaging <coughs> and Xi Jinping's declarations, but also from the bottom up in terms of Chinese youth. And I was wondering if you could help us think about how uh, you know, much of a problem this is for peace and world order and how it expresses itself. This is a very interesting development. Uh, Chinese nationalism has been driven by two forces, top down by the state, what I call it state nationalism and bottom up. Uh, by the popular society, those kind of populists, so I call popular nationalism. For many years before Deng Xiaoping, uh, Xi Jinping's time, the top-down state nationalism was much more reactive and uh, pragmatic uh, to serve its uh, economic development uh, interests. Uh, in that case, um, the popular nationalism was much more um, militant and uh, pushing the government to take a more aggressive position to defend China's so-called uh, state national interests. While some of them also pursue so-called civil individual rights, 
uh, in the context of uh, policy participation uh, aspect. Uh, so the state took the two-pronged policy toward the public nationalism for quite a while. That is uh, to uh, constrain its uh, more aggressive aspect, to use it, uh, uh, that sentiments to defend their positions, uh, sometimes a vital interest against foreign countries. But this has changed since Xi Jinping uh, came to office. There is a convergence, what I call, the, uh, between popular nationalism and the state nationalism because of those kind of uh, very militant popularist sentiments has found uh, sympathizers at the top echelon of the government. Xi Jinping has been very sympathetic. He, he takes, in fact, a very similar position uh, of those uh, popular nationalism. So what I call now, there is an emergence of what I call the state-led popular nationalism, uh, uh, which is uh, uh, characterized by anti-Western values, very, very anti-Western value. Xi Jinping has launched, I, I'm going to write an article on this. Uh, Xi Jinping has launched a new patriotic education, a patriotic education in the new air. That's what the, he talked in the last four years, which targets on the youth. And uh, 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 through the university school, all those curriculum process uh, and uh, focus on the fighting um, uh, spirit, they call the uh, patriotic fighting. That's a new term Xi Jinping has uh, invented. Uh, try to uh, target on those liberal intellectuals and also try to target all the liberal values, Western values. That's the, and also in the past, the patriotic education uh, based upon the victim uh, uh, humiliation type of uh, sentiments. Now it's built upon national pride. Uh, national accomplishments through Xi Jinping emphasize the military strength in the military parade. You can see all those type of developments and uh, very uncompromised to uh, the Western uh, criticism of uh, China, also domestic, the very intolerant to any criticism of the government, which also um, this development has gained ground in China today, especially in those youth, young people. I'm so um, um, impressed by these young people. These people, not, not like my generation, they did not experience the Mao Zedong's uh, or even Deng Xiaoping's years. They grew up on the uh, Jiang Zemin and uh, Hu Jintao years, now Xi Jinping years, uh, with the confidence of the Chinese uh, development accomplishments, everything. And also those kind of uh, internet censorship, all, all those changed their mind. And uh, these people become so kind of uh, patriotic, proud of Chinese national accomplishments, and also very militant, hostile to the Western values. That's what we see now in, Hong in the Chinese responses to Hong Kong issue. I mean, Chinese responses to the Taiwan issue, Chinese responses to the US nowadays. The, all the surveys you can see, even not internal survey China, you see the uh, 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 UCSD survey, uh, data lab, lab survey, you see the Harvard Kennedy School survey, all those surveys have uh, provided so strong uh, data to show the Communist Party has uh, strong domestic support because of these kind of nationalist sentiments, because of this convergence um, between popular and state nationalism. This is very, very dangerous for, uh, in the context of China's rise uh, and also for the international community to be aware of that. 
so uh, given that, uh, Sam, what's your advice to the incoming administration on how it should um, deal with China and seek to manage or balance off China's increasingly robust and bullying rise in the world? I think the current administration uh, has to uh, change uh, Trump administration's uh, policy of inconsistent, uh, inconsistency, unpredictability, uh, should uh, um, build credibility, credibility in the relationship with China and also with the international community to let them know what the US policy toward China is instead of uh, making uh, uh, fight here and fight there. US has to build a very consistent position toward China, uh, which I think should be, we'll, we can work with China. We will have no choice to work with China. Uh, if China is uh, willing to change its behavior to play by rules, I think the, Trump, the Joe Biden administration has emphasized the rules. We have to all follow the same rules. That's, I think, the starting point to work with China and uh, to make sure uh, China would uh, respect, uh, China would defend their own interests for sure, but also respect, understand the other countries' concerns. And also China could not uh, 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 take, attack uh, the interests of uh, other countries without consequences. And uh, so US has been firm on the both sides of collaboration and competition. China is a country we have no way to ignore. We have to work with as a very important country. But on the other hand, we have to be aware of, of uh, let China know that uh, we have a very different value systems. We have a very different interest and we have to find ways to make a compromise on both sides. Thank you very much, uh, Sui Chung, for those very interesting comments. Um, and uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today. That concludes the latest installment in our conversations on China's global sharp power. Thank you for joining us. Mm -hmm.